Well, you may have noticed that just in recent days, we are at a critical moment in history because the royal family is in turmoil. Uh, that is in England, not the Malaysian royal families. <laughs> well, they might be in turmoil too, for all I know, but the English royal family is in turmoil. They are having a meeting in the fact the queen has spoken to her grandson. That was top news. Isn't it amazing that a grandmother talking to her grandson <laughs> is the top news because this is a critical moment in the uh, royal family of England. Secondly, uh, that is second in importance, uh, there is a critical moment with the potential of World War III between Iran and the United States of America. Less important than the royal family of England, it seems, from the news that I read anyway. And so we are at a critical moment. Is Iran going to retaliate with more seriousness against the killing of their minister and leader of the military and so on? Uh, by the United States in Iraq a few days ago. We are at a critical moment in history because China, so people say, probably Xi Jinping is listening to me here at the moment, <laughs> is now the world number one force at exercising enormous influence in this world. We are also at a critical moment in history because the actions of the President of the United States this week happen, of course, at the beginning of an election year. And that, of course, could change the direction of history. We are at a critical moment in history because Australia beat New Zealand in the cricket, easily. <laughs> we are at a critical moment in history because you are here today. It seems to me that almost every week, somebody is saying we are at a critical moment in history because somebody's talking to somebody or not talking to somebody else or bombing somebody, killing somebody or not killing somebody. We are always, it seems, at critical moments of history. People say it all the time, it seems to me. Commentators love to use that phrase. And so here we are at the beginning of what some people think is a new decade, but it isn't really. But for those who can't count, we're at the beginning of a new decade. And, uh, and so people are reflecting on the critical moment of the new decade that they think has just begun and what might happen in the next 10 years ahead. History is full of critical moments. Every moment is critical for somebody. And if it's not, they can pretend it is, which seems to be what's going on. I think the phrase is totally overused except when Jesus uses it. The time is fulfilled. He uses a distinctive word when he says the time is fulfilled. Not that I want to give you a Greek lesson, but there are a couple of different words for time in Greek, and this is, the, the, this is a, a particular time, an opportunity time, a significant time. That's the word that he's using here. The time is fulfilled. This is a critical moment in history. And far more important than any royal family, far more important than any threat of war between two countries, far more important than any sporting event in history, is Jesus now speaking, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. In effect, Jesus' opening words of his adult ministry. The time is fulfilled, he says. Not just that the time has arrived. The time is fulfilled suggests that something from the past has now come to its fulfillment, resolution, or climax. And what he's referring to is that the coming of Jesus right here has been anticipated for centuries. And we know that from what we call the Old Testament. Three quarters of the Bible, in effect, looks forward to this very moment of Jesus' coming. Past promises are being fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Promises that go back, in fact, 2,000 years before Jesus came. Now, I find that remarkable. When I make a promise to somebody, I don't think of fulfilling it in 2,000 years' time. If somebody says to you, I'll be in touch, my guess is that after a few weeks, you'll have given up. Maybe you should wait 2,000 years. God made promises to a man called Abraham very early in the Bible, 2,000 years before Jesus came, promises that are now finding their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ, promises that deal with the salvation and the blessing of the whole world. And in effect, the history and the narration of that history has been building up for 2,000 years through the pages of the Old Testament in various forms of songs and poetry and prophecy and historical narrative and the giving of laws to this very moment. Jesus arriving, preaching, the kingdom of God is near. The restoration of all things to God, the blessing of all nations, the renewal and reconciliation of the whole fallen creation is now finding its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. It's not fulfilled in the very words that he says here, but he's announcing this is the critical time. This is the time long awaited, long expected, long promised from the Old Testament. And now with the arrival of Jesus himself, this fulfillment is beginning. And in a way, the Old Testament is like a child eagerly awaiting Christmas Day. I can see that some child's still waiting by the stocking that's hanging behind me. And I feel very sorry for that child. (laughs) Obviously, Santa Claus missed them out, and I suppose this stocking might hang there for a little while longer yet. But like a child who's counting down the numbers of days. I have one of my clergy in Melbourne who's retiring in August, and uh, and I I said to her one day, you know, are you looking forward to retirement? She said something like 633 days to go, or sleeps to go, she said. And I, then I quizzed her, do you sleep twice a day or once? Because some people like the afternoon nap, you know. <laughs> it's like a young couple who are counting down the days to their wedding. Or a married couple counting down the days for the birth of their child. Or the sports player who's looking forward with eager anticipation for a victory. And so the Old Testament is not just telling us what happened, but is yearning for, longing for, this day. The arrival of Jesus, the time is fulfilled. Not that the Old Testament was counting down the number of sleeps or days because it didn't know when Jesus would come, just that he would. And here he is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe 
in the gospel. The time is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, the person arriving, speaking, healing, ministering. And if you keep reading Mark's gospel, ultimately and critically dying on a cross and rising. I love mystery books. I love reading crime fiction. I love reading crime fiction in all sorts of weird places of the world, North Korea and Iceland, for example, and different places. I love trying to think, who has done the murder? I read a crime fiction novel just the other day, a Japanese novel, trying to work out who did the murder. I didn't get it right. I never get it right. I never picked the butler. There's a popular theory that Mark tells his gospel like a mystery. Who's this Jesus? Who's this Jesus? People do ask that through Mark. You'll see that uh, in the next few chapters in particular. But this popular theory that Mark is like a mystery. Who's Jesus? As though he's uncovering and leading you with clues to find the answer is actually a stupid theory. It's completely wrong because as you will have seen last week, Verse 1, chapter 1 says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know who he is. He's the Son of God. And here, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is not speaking in mystery language. He's directing people to himself, saying, I am the one who brings about the fulfillment of all the long-awaited promises of God over the last 2,000 years. Yes, the people in the story, the disciples, for example, and the crowds, they, they are not sure who Jesus is. They ponder. But for us, the reader, Mark makes it very clear. He doesn't want us to be exploring a mystery and finding out that the wrong person did it. He wants us to be abundantly clear. This is all about Jesus Christ. He makes that clear from the beginning. And so Jesus comes proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God. Some translations will have the good news of God. Gospel's a sort of technical word, but it was used in ancient Rome for key public announcements. The emperor would use it to announce the birth of a child, for example. Here is the gospel. Emperor Augustus used the word for that. But this is the good news not of an emperor or of just anybody. It's the good news of God, God himself. This is God's good news that God is bringing through God's very son, Jesus Christ. Not merely a prophet or a king or a priest or any other person brought by God's very son, as chapter 1, verse 1 wants us to know right from the very first sentence. Long promised by God, God's good news of salvation, of reconciliation, of bringing all those promises of blessing to this world to their fulfillment. Good news that's been anticipated time and again through the Old Testament. We saw one example of that in the reading from Isaiah, for example. So what is this good news of God? Well, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. A bit hard to be exact in our translation. Both of those things are are right. You imagine you're waiting for somebody to arrive. You see a plane in a distance, gradually getting larger. You think it's the right plane. Then you still got to wait while somebody goes through the laborious 
immigration and customs and all that sort of thing, and finally they arrive. And in a way, the Old Testament has been waiting for that day, looking forward for that day, and now finally it's come. The kingdom of God has come near, is at hand, basically is here, is what Jesus is saying. Not, not, not the ge geography of a kingdom. So this is not like a political coup that is saying, well, these are my boundaries and this is my kingdom and I'm taking over. But rather the, the rule of God has now begun. For the world basically since the very third chapter of the whole Bible is actually in disarray. And whilst there are movements through the Old Testament of establishing the kingdom of God's rule over God's people and giving them even a geographical location for that, the promised land, the land of Israel, for example, and giving them kings to rule over them and laws under which they are to live, it basically failed time and time again. The glimpses of, of in effect, God's kingdom on earth are so brief that you might miss them if you read the Old Testament. But now Jesus says it's finally arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. And one of the things we will discover as you keep reading Mark's gospel is that this Jesus, the son of God, is himself the king. And he's in effect crowned as king, not on a glorious golden throne, but naked on a cross. For when you get to chapter 15 and you see Jesus dying on, on the cross, it's the king language that's used of Jesus numerous times in that chapter. This kingdom of God is not our initiative. It's not a human creation or ambition. This kingdom of God is God's initiative, and it's God who brings it about. For one of the things, if you read history, you realize that in different places of the world, though they may use different language, people have tried to establish, in effect, the kingdom of God on earth, try to establish a utopia, try to establish the, the best and greatest place. Some might even claim they've got it now. But actually, in the end, the kingdom of God is not our achievement. It's not for us to build, but God is the one who brings it. Jesus goes on then to say the kingdom of God or the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand and then he demands a twofold response. So it's not just the announcement of some fact, it's a fact that impinges on his listeners. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is if the kingdom of God is to come into in effect people's lives and they are to be part of its dominion, they're not being taken over unwillingly by God. There is a twofold response. Repent. I think repent is one of the most unpopular words in the church these days. It seems to me that the church is so reluctant ever to use such a word, as if we've got the right to say to somebody, to some group, to some person, you should repent of that. How little it is ever said from a pulpit or in conversation, it seems to me. That's where I think so much of our worldwide church is just falling into a, a great morass of ambiguous ethics, basically. God actually makes it clear, I think, what standards he expects. And repent is actually a good word. 
It's not a word of judgment. It's a word of second chance. So when God says to you, repent of your sins, he's saying, I'm giving you another chance. I'm not coming down like a great big foot to squash you as Monty Python sort of imagined God in some of its sort of cartoons many years ago. But God's saying, repent. Turn is what the word means. There's no theological word in the Old Testament for repent. They just simply use the word turn. Just like you turn around or turn your car around, turn, turn to God, turn around, turn away from the way, away from the direction of your life and towards God. And that's what the word repent means, to turn. It, it also captures the idea of changing your mind, not because you're fickle and you can never make a decision, but rather that your mind will change from the direction that you are, you're leading your life. And you'll orient not just your, your body, but your mind and attitude and will back to God. And so when the Bible says, as it does in both Old and New Testaments numerous times, repent, it's a word of invitation. God is saying, I'll give you another chance. The direction in which your life is heading is wrong. You can turn back to me, turn to me, and I will welcome you is the implication of this. Repent is a good word. There's an actress in Australia, I'd never heard of her because I don't watch TV and rarely watch films, but they're famous people apparently, and her name is Anna McGahn. She was an actress, she had anorexia, she valued her physical body in different films apparently or TV or something, she was uh, barely clothed, I think, and recently she's become a Christian. And she's written a memoir of becoming a Christian, published in the secular press. And her memoir is called Metanoia. My guess is that hardly anybody in Australia would know what the word metanoia meant, but it's the Greek word for repent, the word that's used exactly here. And she's realized that as she comes to find meaning and identity and faith and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, she's repented. She's turned around her life. She's accepted this invitation of repent so that behavior changes and mind and attitude change. It may be that some of you here, for you, this, this may be your critical time to think actually the direction of my life is not Godward at all. There are things in my life that I value, I idolize. I need to turn. I need to take up this invitation of Jesus. I need to practice metanoia, to repent. But it's not just repent. Jesus uses the word believe. We have to be careful here. You can believe a fact to be true, but it has no impact on your life. So I believe that Julius Caesar conquered Britain in 44 BC, and I believe Australia beat New Zealand, but actually it has no real impact in my life. It doesn't change the way I live at all. But here... It's to believe in something, to entrust yourself to something. It's got an element of, of trust, not just believing facts. And so Jesus is inviting people to repent, turn their life around, and trust the good news, to trust the promises of God, to trust that Jesus is the one who is the king, who is the son of God, to trust the salvation that Jesus will bring in the climax of Mark's gospel in his death on the cross. 
And that's the same for us. We should not think of these two things as divorced or separate. You're not going to repent of your sins and turn to God unless you trust in, believe in, Jesus Christ. And if you do entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, then that will be seen in repentance and turning your life and attitudes around. The Bible always sees that what we could say here, faith and obedience go hand in hand, the flip side of the same coin, I guess. It's not that God wants two separate things. In Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks about the aim of the gospel being the obedience of faith. And we see it in the Old Testament as well. This is not a New Testament addition or change. The Old Testament wanted people to obey in faith. And that's what Jesus is saying. Repent means turn away from sin to obey in faith. Believe in the gospel. So what we see then is that this coming of Jesus and his proclamation demands a response, demands a change, demands faithful obedience. And we see glimpses of this in what follows. Because we might well say, well, is it worth it? How do we know that this Jesus is not just like a journalist today saying this is a critical moment in history and the next week there'll be another one? And so what we follow, what we see in, in the chapters that follow actually in the early part of Mark's gospel up to the middle of chapter 8 in particular are in, a, in effect scenes and for us evidence, I guess, that this Jesus is worth responding to. It is worth repenting and believing in this Jesus. He calls disciples. These are just fishermen, a range of other professions, quite a, quite a group of people, just a few who are mentioned in the next paragraph, 16 to 20. They're in, in Galilee, in the north of Israel, as it is, was then and, and is today under Roman rule, in effect, at this time. A couple of pairs of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John. They probably already had an engagement or an encounter with Jesus. It's not like he just walks up and says, follow me, and they just blindly follow. There is indication that, that they'd already heard about him or met him in an earlier time. Now, this is a bit unusual. Jesus is often spoken of as teacher. The disciples call him teacher later. And rabbis, you would, you would want, if you wanted to follow a rabbi in Jesus' day, you would apply to them. When I did my PhD many years ago, I applied to a supervisor, would you accept me as your student, and, and so on, and, and thankfully he did. But here it's Jesus who takes the initiative, a bit different from the rabbis of his society. And, and these are everyday people. He's not going to the elite of the elite. He doesn't walk up to these fishermen and say, did you go to the international school? Did you have private education? Have you done a postgraduate degree? Who are your parents? What's your family history? Is there a lot of wealth and influence in your family? None of that. He just calls ordinary, everyday people. We find that all the way through the Bible. It should be a great encouragement to us because as I look around, you look pretty ordinary, everyday sorts of people to me. And so these are the sorts of people he calls and they follow him. It's meant to be an example there's an emphasis on leaving behind. It's a family business. That's quite a significant thing, to leave your family. A friend of mine was a Buddhist monk and decided that, that his aim was to convert Christians in Myanmar into Buddhism. And he would argue with them apologetically time and time again until 
He became a Christian. He now has a PhD in Christian mission. But his family kicked him out. That is, becoming a Christian sometimes does mean leaving things behind, either at our initiative or, or at somebody else's. And my guess is that amongst you, there are some of you who've been ostracized at best by your family because you're Christian. Well, having called them, Jesus sets up, it seems, his base in this little village of Capernaum, the very top end right on the waters of the Sea of Galilee, lost for centuries under the water and the mud, in fact. And there on the Sabbath, he teaches in a synagogue, as people might do. And people were astonished at his teaching, amazed at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Now, that's different from my preaching, I think. I'm preaching under the authority, I hope, of God's word. Jesus is teaching as one who inherently has authority to teach. We see that a few times in his ministry. Later on, as he gives a Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, you've heard it said, but I say to you, here is a man of unique authority teaching, and the amazement of the people is described for us. And then he casts out an evil spirit. And whilst this may be a little bit foreign to our normal everyday life experience, we should not think this is just merely an ignorant way of describing illness. These evil spirits know who Jesus is. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's interesting that people don't know who Jesus is, but the spirits do from the spirit world. They know that they are being confronted here by the Holy One of God, the Son of God. And they're afraid. They hate this idea. They recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near. And they are being thrown into turmoil now. These evil spirits, it will happen again and again in Mark's gospel as different evil spirits are defeated in effect by the powerful word of this Jesus, the Son of God, the King. So the good news is of the gospel of God is that evil, evil spirits, evil in general, is being overthrown. That's why we need to repent from our evil deeds and thoughts and idolatries. Mark, you see, wants us to know straight away this Jesus, the Son of God in verse 1, who's bringing the kingdom in verse 14, is indeed the Holy One of God in verse 24, as the evil spirits declare. And again, the crowds are amazed. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. It's easy to command unclean spirits. All of us can do that. But it's the obedience of those unclean spirits to leave the person that is amazing. And at once his fame spread every, everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Galilee is the north of Israel. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's in the foothills of the Golan Heights and out towards the Mediterranean under one of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas at this time, but ultimately under Roman rule at this time as well. Jesus' fame is spreading. And again, as you keep going through Mark's gospel in the weeks to come, you will see the gathering crowds, the growing crowds, the amazement of the crowds, chapter by chapter. Peter comes into Peter's, uh, sorry, Jesus comes into Peter's mother-in-law's house the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
and Simon's mother-in-law, that's Peter, same, same person, different names, but you're Chinese, many of you, you understand that. <laughs> and he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Peter's mother-in-law's house is probably being found by archaeologists. It's one of the most remarkable things, in my opinion. This uh, house uh, in Capernaum, just uh, a stone's throw from the synagogue ruins, uh, has evidence that in the middle of the first century AD, people were worshipping Jesus in that house. It's not a church building. It's a building that's been used to worship Jesus in because of the graffiti on the wall. Not as in vandalization graffiti, but just words on the wall. Most people would say this is probably Peter's mother-in-law's house where Jesus was based. And this is where he goes. And he heals her. Well, so what? Maybe it's coincidence. The fever leaves her. But isn't it interesting that the fever leaves her immediately and immediately she gets up and serves them? A friend of mine was staying with me with his family just after Christmas. And uh, Peter had fever, was in bed for a day. The next day felt a bit better. A couple of days later was fully well. And I would guess all of you have had fever of some sort. You live in Malaysia after all. But fever doesn't suddenly, oh, it's gone. You don't suddenly think, oh, it's 357, my fever's just gone. I'm fully well. It's a gradual recovery. And what you will see with this miracle, but others that follow in Mark's gospel as well, chapter 2 you'll see next week, I think, a man who suddenly gets up and walks. People don't do that without sort of gradual recovery with therapy or whatever it might be. Here is a real healing that is full, immediate, by this powerful Jesus Christ. Peter's mother-in-law, fully well. At the end of the day, at evening at sundown, remember it's a Sabbath day, and in verse 32, evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick. These were obedient Jews who would not want to do that on the Sabbath day, but at sundown, that's the end of the day for Jewish people. And they brought all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together. Well, don't think of a city like Kuala Lumpur. It's a small village, really. And he healed many who were sick. Mark's just given us a couple of examples, like Peter's mother-in-law and the person with the evil spirit in the synagogue. But there were many whom he healed. It's no fluke, is what Mark is saying to us. Jesus has brought the kingdom near. There's a real sense of an eyewitness account here. Notice that it's at evening, we're told, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick, the whole city gathered at the door. They can't all fit in the house. So this sense of an eyewitness, little details that just bring it alive, not artificially, but rather with a reliable memory, I'm sure. Well, Jesus, early the next morning, prays while it's still dark, the disciples hunt him down. They almost rebuke him. Everyone's looking for you, they say to him in verse 37. And Jesus doesn't engage with that. He says, well, come on, everyone's looking for you. You've got to go and serve them and do what they ask. And Jesus says, no, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. A priority of preaching and a priority of casting out demons, which is how the end of the, chapter, the paragraph tells us he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. No doubt healing people as well. No doubt doing other good deeds as well. But as a priority for proclaiming the gospel of God, 
a priority, it seems, for proclaiming that the time is near. And the amazement of the crowds will be repeated. The gathering of the fame will be repeated time and time again. But at the same time, the enmity will grow. The enmity of those evil spirits. What do you have to do with us? We don't want you here, the Holy One of God. In effect, is what they're saying in the synagogue of Capernaum earlier in chapter 1. And what I think Mark, in effect, links that to is that gradually the enmity against this Jesus will increase. The crowds and fame increase. People flock to hear him, get people healed and evil spirits cast out. But at the same time, evil will rise its ugly head against him more and more sharply. People begin to speak against him in chapter 2. They begin to plot against him a few chapters later. And that brings us to the climax of Jesus on a cross. The king on a cross. The kingdom being brought near at hand through a cross. Where evil does its last desperate thing to stop this king, this son, this gospel of God but it fails. This gospel of God demands our response. Our response to Jesus. Not our response to being good people. Not our response to sort of liking churchy life. But our response to Jesus, the King, the Son of God. To return to him, to turn, to obey to turn away from the direction of our life, to believe in, to trust, to entrust ourselves to this Jesus. That's the response that we're called to do. And so therefore it may be that today is indeed a critical time for you. Not because of politics or sport or weather or anything else, but because maybe this day is the critical time for you to make this response to Jesus Christ, to turn from the direction of your life and to say, Jesus, I believe in you, I trust in you. I want to follow you like those disciples did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fulfillment of your long promises in Jesus. And we pray that we may indeed turn to him and away from our own sins, trust in him and follow him. And we thank you that this Jesus has come to be our king, to be our savior, to draw us into your kingdom rule. Amen.